Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our wonderful community partners across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which you can find anywhere podcasts can be found. And a new update to those who are just tuning in the last couple of weeks, we are now also proud members of the Harbinger Podcast Network. Stoked to be here. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with a feature interview with Sean Holman, the director at the Climate Disaster Project and the Wayne Cooks Professor of Climate and Environmental Journalism at the University of Victoria. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me, Stefan. By way of introduction, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the climate movement? It's a really good question. Um, so for me, um, I had uh, an extensive background in investigative journalism in British Columbia. I had covered mostly resource development, child welfare, and political accountability issues during the 10 years that I was an investigative journalist. Then I sort of cashed all my chips in um, and uh, got into academia. I was hired by Mount Royal University as a journalism professor. And I became very interested in essentially why we value information democracies. What, what exactly is it that information is doing? And what do we expect from information? I was sort of you know, researching the freedom of information movement and sort of the history behind that and, and that sort of thing. But I was sort of keeping this sort of societal broad context in mind, right? Why is it that we value information? And then around 2017, um, something happened for me. And that thing was wildfire smoke billowing over the Rocky Mountains into Calgary, where I was then working. I had expected as, as sort of a longtime journalist that the news media would be making a climate connection to the wildfire smoke and the wildfires and climate change. I was expecting major print media in each province, British Columbia and Alberta, would be letting readers know why this was happening, because that's important information in a democracy, right? We use information to make rational and empathetic decisions about the world around us. That's the idea. That's the whole idea behind democracy, right? And that wasn't happening. It wasn't just happening in a small way. It was happening in a big way. Less than 10% of the stories in the major newspapers and in the Canadian press were actually drawing that connection. So that ultimately ended up uh, with me penning a open letter uh, to the Canadian media um, that got quite a bit of traction, calling on the Canadian media to treat climate change with the urgency that it demands. And that basically completely diverted my career away from this more broader focus on sort of why we value information and democracies to a more specific focus on what is it that the news media should do what is it that society at large should do um, as a result of climate change and as a result of the tectonic forces that are going to be shaking society over this coming century? I honestly have to ask you a question about information and democracies, because of course. one of the things that I've noticed more often than not, following a lot of reporters and seeing how hard it is for reporters to be able to actually report information in Canada, is just how hard it is to even when reporters want to get information, you know, from governments and from municipalities. And it seems that we in Canada, we actually have a very weak system of getting information out to the public and that like freedom of information requests seem to be constantly either snowballed or delayed. And there's time and time again, it seems as if we are with actively withholding information from voters because you're right. Information has to be a fundamental building block of democracy. And so yeah, are we uniquely bad? And 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 if so, like, what was your experience of looking into that? We are actually uniquely bad. We're actually one of the 
worst, I would argue, uh, countries in the world when it comes to uh, freedom of information. And we're one of the worst democracies in the world when it comes to freedom of information, because Canada is really fundamentally a nation of gaslighters. You know, we claim that we are certain things, um, and it doesn't really matter what the reality of it is. Um, what matters is that we seem to be these things. And so we like to seem like we're a democracy. We like to seem like we value information. We like to seem like we live in an open society, in an open government, but that's absolutely not the case. And this has really deleterious effects on society. So there's two big reasons why we value information. One is control. So the idea is with information, we can make better decisions about the world around us that are empathetic and rational, thereby controlling public and private institutions. So this is where, you know, Ralph Nader used to say information is the currency of democracy. That's why, right? And then the other is the idea of certainty. So with information, we can better understand the past, we can better understand the present, and we can better predict um, or anticipate the future. So when governments, as they often do in Canada, um, frustrate information, uh, frustrate freedom of information, they're also frustrating control and certainty. They're also frustrating our ability to feel in an increasingly uncertain and uncontrollable world that we can do something about it. And of course, that's because of their own desire for control and certainty as well, because secrecy allows for control and certainty on the part of the people who hold it, whether or not that's corporations or governments. But the thing that we should really be thinking about in this moment is, does information have the same value that it used to, or are people looking to things other than information for control and certainty. And I would argue that they are. And we can see that in the rise of conspiracy theories, which are a form of control and certainty. We can see that in the rise of authoritarianism, which is a form of control and certainty. And what I suspect is going to happen over the coming decades as we sort of move into the poly crises that are going to result from climate change, what we're going to see is that we will stop valuing information the way in which we used to and instead look to community for control and uncertainty. And the question then becomes what kind of communities will come out of this lack of control and lack of certainty. And then as journalists, the question is, what do we do? Since we are all about providing information, how do we recalibrate for this new world that we're heading into. And that doesn't mean I like that. I'm a big believer in the importance of information, right? Which is why we're talking today. But that said, um, we can either accept the reality of what is about to happen and adapt to that reality, or we can become, um, you know, basically antiquities, right? In this new age of disaster that we're heading into. That's really interesting because you can really see even a direct line from the current withholding of information to that shift as well, right? Like the more and more in which these governments and in, in, in everything else become black boxes of information where a thought goes in, something else comes out, but you can never figure out what the interworkings are, that creates a space ripe for conspiracy theory, you know, ripe for people to be able to misconstrue what's happening. And then the more the government tries to hide even innocuous things, which is what it seems like it's doing at this point, like, yes, they're definitely hiding some things that, you know, there's definitely some things that they should release and need to release and are very important. But it seems as if it's a process that's not even super important things that are being difficult to get access to. It's almost as if the goal is just delay and obstruct almost any information flow whatsoever. And of course, that's going to create places for conspiracy theories, because if you can't back up your side of things with a line back to facts, not, and then neither can they. You're lining up a story versus another story, which really shifts the conversation from, yeah, from information to stories and community. 
that's exactly right. You've you've articulated perfectly. And then when you layer on a lack of media literacy, a lack of civic literacy, right, in the education system, when you layer on the fact that our education system prepares people to be good employees, um, rather than smart uh, citizens and consumers and humans, um, you get the recipe for disaster that we are now dealing with. And my own view is that it's too late to unspool any of that. Um, so we just have to deal with the situation as it is right now. Right. And, and really shift in understanding how we build restorative communities, basically. That's right. Yeah, exactly. How do we preserve um, the best of what we have? Um, and how do we make it better? Um, and how do we do that against the backdrop of uh, climate collapse? Right. Inter cool. I mean, not cool, but interesting. Um, so I do want to get to your project itself. But before I do, I, I have one other question. We're already talking about it. So it's right, well, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're moving. <laughs> we're moving in the general direction. We're moving, we're moving in the general direction. We can see it on the horizon. Yeah, exactly. And so I think I we'll get one more step before we 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 dive in which is I would love to hear your perspective about stories and storytelling, mm -hmm. you know, because I come uh, from a background that I do a lot of storytelling work uh, on the side. I, I run a storytelling event and I've sort of worked, I love living in, in real life personal storytelling. And so that's one of the reasons why your project is so interesting to me is because you are going from this sort of knowledge or, or information based to stories and, and communication based. And so I'd love to hear about how you think about stories and storytelling and why you see them as so important. Well, all we ever want, really, as humans, is to know and be known, right? To know other people and to have other people know us. And we can see that in our friendships, we can see that in our relationships, and we can see that in broader society, to know and be known. And it is through knowing and allowing ourselves to be known that we create community. That's really how story works, right? Story is the prerequisite, right, for community. Can't form community without knowing who you're forming community with. And then from community, that's where hope comes from, right? If we don't have people in our lives who can hold us tight and who we can hold tight as well, if we don't have people in our lives who we know they have our back and we have theirs, we can't have hope, right? then we're just alone. It's the opposite of knowing and being known. So I think really that's sort of where story comes in. Story, community, hope. That's the chain. That's the human chain, mm -hmm. right? We can't have one without the other. Right. And I think that's also the hope of society, really. I mean, and yeah, certainly at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the sad thing is, is that so much of our society works against, um, you know, us knowing and being known. Um, so much of the relationships we have work against us knowing and being known. Um, you know, these atomized um, relationships, nuclear relationships, um in settler society in the West. It's not particularly healthy, but it is the society we have to deal with. So how do we get around that? Yeah, for sure. And man, I can't help but reflect a little bit on the ways of how this conversation about storytelling and community sort of dovetail with some of the conversations happening in urbanism around third spaces and you know the need for these non-consumptive places to be and to live together you know because it does come back to this knowing and being known 
right? Like if you're only, if the only places you see people is at your house and at your work, then your only two identities are as a person who does a job and a person who is at home. That's right. And, you know, you don't, you lose all the other identities. And then also you lose the places to tell these other stories and to be these other people. And it is interesting how, as we've removed ways to sort of share stories and be in community, the community exists both in stories, but also in space. And our society is really, really chipped away at a lot of both of those pillars of, you know, of belonging, as you mentioned. It really has. And I mean, we've almost become addicted to the level of isolation that we have from one another. I mean, you think about Canadians, for example, obsession with privacy. Um, you know, that is the opposite of knowing and being known. Right? We have become addicted to this atomization. We have become addicted to um the walls inside of our mind. And I don't think that's a particularly healthy thing for society, but it is the society that we find ourselves living in. Yeah, exactly. So I think actually, before we tell listeners what exactly the disaster, uh, so the climate disaster project is, I want to go to a quick music break and then we'll come back and we'll just dive into the whole operation. Um, so we'll be right back uh, with Sean Holman, the director at the Climate Disaster Project and the Wayne Cooks Professor of Climate and Environmental Journalism at the University of Victoria. We'll be right back after a short music break. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and if you're listening earlier, you know that I'm here with Sean Holman, the director at the Climate Disaster Project and the Wayne Crooks Professor of Climate and Environment Journalism, Environmental Journalism at the University of Victoria. And the first section, we talked about storytelling and knowledge, and I think set a great foundation for this project. So can you tell us what the Climate Disaster Project is? Yeah, absolutely. So the Climate Disaster Project is an international project uh, that's based at 13 post-secondary institutions around the world. Um, and what we do is we work with people who are climate disaster survivors, people who have lived through climate disasters, to share their stories share the stories of their experiences with these disasters. And this work actually takes place in the classroom. So we have classes at all of these institutions where students are working collaboratively with climate disaster survivors as well as one another to surface these stories at the cusp of this new age of disaster. And really this project is based around sort of a couple notions, right? One is the idea that we are actually all climate disaster survivors, right? In one way, shape, or another. Whether we've experienced heat waves, whether we've experienced intense storms and floods, whether we've experienced wildfire smoke, whether we've experienced wildfires or heat waves, we are all climate disaster survivors. And yet, we don't think of ourselves that way. One of the reasons we don't think of ourselves that way is the news media and to a certain extent as well, the environmental movement 
has really focused on the large scale future tense impacts of climate change, as opposed to the human scale present tense impacts of climate change. And when we focus on those things, those other things, those large scale environmental impacts, that are dehumanized in a lot of ways, right, aren't centered on the human experience, then that compromises our ability to actually form connections on the basis of this lived experience of climate change that we are all going through. And if we can't form connections around this lived experience of climate change, then that means it becomes almost impossible to address. I mean, really, the problem right now is the climate movement in many ways is a movement that's based on anxiety, right? The tension between what we are doing about climate change uh, versus what we should be doing about climate change and what the consequences of that will be in the future. I don't know really any successful social movement that has actually ever been based around the idea of anxiety. Um, so maybe, right, it's time to try something different. Maybe it's time to really reframe climate change as a human problem in the here and now, um, that we can, as individuals, do something about if we form community around this experience. And so I think I want to spend a bulk of this middle section talking about your manifesto, mm. because your manifesto is awesome. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, also very well formatted on your website as an aside, but truly, I think, fantastic. And so can you tell our audience what your manifesto is, and then maybe we can talk through the thinking behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally do that. So there's basically uh, five different parts to the manifesto. Um, so the first part is, as I mentioned, um, you know, climate change, right, is destroying lives and livelihoods, right, around the world. Okay. Second part is that means we are all climate disaster survivors but we don't always see ourselves or others that way. So we feel alone in our climate change experiences, but sharing our experiences can help us feel less alone and bring us hope. That's basically the summary. So yeah, climate change is destroying lives and livelihoods around the world. Greta Thunberg was quite smart about this uh, about two years ago when she criticized the media for not really telling those stories. She complained that these stories of climate change always feel like they are too far away or happening to someone else. But we know, we know, we know that 85% of the world's population lives in areas that have been affected by climate change. We also know that these kind of destructive events have caused $1.4 trillion in damages between 2010 and 2019. And that's an increase of almost 700% since 1970 to 1979. And we also know that these disasters between 2008 and 2020 also caused 283 million people to be displaced. So we are all climate disaster survivors because this is going to get worse. This is going to get so much worse, right? By the end of the century, climate change could also cause at least 83 million premature deaths. And that's more than outdoor air pollution. At the same time, by the end of this century, we're going to be looking at 5 billion climate refugees as a result of rising sea levels and the need to seek cooler climes. So this is going to become the defining experience of our individual and collective lives. But we're still not seeing ourselves as climate disaster survivors. We're still not seeing ourselves that way. And this is really, really important because what will end up happening is we end up feeling alone 
in these experiences or that our experiences aren't significant. Someone else has it worse than we do. So we don't come together around this experience. And this is going to be a real problem in the future because the real thing that we're not paying attention to, we talk a lot about the environmental implications of climate change. What we don't talk nearly enough about is the societal implications of climate change. And that's a problem because what we're going to see is walls that are built around the world by the privileged to keep out the less privileged as we deal with these disasters one after another, trauma compounding trauma. And if less we build more empathetic societies, unless we see one another in our climate experiences, that's going to be the future. So if we can share our experiences, build community around this experience, build connection around this experience, then we can have hope in the future. And that's what the Climate Disaster Project is really all about. Because if we share our stories, that's the first step along the way to actually creating community. Yeah, that's amazing. I think there are there are two things I want to pull out from that before we dive in further. The first is, I'd be curious your thoughts on the sort of myth of the apocalypse, mm. which I think is part of the reason why we can't see ourselves as surviving the sort of climate disaster, right? Because we sort of imagine a that to be like this idea of the climate change in the future is always just there's gonna be something much worse or terrible in advance and yet what it will look like is things like hurricane ian that we just saw two weeks ago right like it just means or the or the heat dome from last year like i don't know what could feel more apocalyptic than not being able to go outside because it's so hot you know in vancouver like let alone you know the places across the world that are facing 50 degree weather or, or higher, which is, you know, past the wet bulb temperature, which is truly terrifying. But none of that, because it's not a sort of a single instance or like a, a an event gets the sort of sense that we are now in survival mode, right? We like, and it's amazing to me is that we just went through a global pandemic, which you would think would feel like that, you know, it would feel like a singular event that we would then all feel like we're coming out of. And yet even that somehow got absorbed into our own narrative of just continuation. Yeah. And, and I feel like without that, we're lacking that sort of perspective that we're in it now in part because everyone's waiting for like the event, which for folks I'm putting you know, no one can see my hands, but I'm putting that in. No, and the marks. event has happened. They are yeah. happening around the world all the time, all the time. But part of it, again, is sort of this tendency for the environmental movement, right, to sort of be very anxiety based, right? It's all about this threat in the future as an incentive to action. And it's hard to sort of then recalibrate that those threats are actually now here. You, it's, it's like in an economic recession, right? There's no point in talking about, right? Or for people who are already in a recession, right? There's no point in talking about the future that the recession is, is coming because it's already here, right? So we've got this like weird sense of this, our, our temporal, right, sense, right, of climate change um, is all screwed up, right? And it's also really interesting. You sort of mentioned the, the apocalyptic element of it, and that's really super interesting. I was talking to a, a, a very good uh, paleogeologist by the name of Christopher Scatezzi a couple of years back. And Christopher is one of those sort of climate scientists who says unpopular things, um, both for the nihilist movement, but also for the climate movement. And he said something really interesting to me. He said, look, the problem is not where we're headed, geologically speaking, right? The world has been at higher temperatures before and higher carbon dioxide uh, concentrations. Not when humans have been around, but life has been around then. And in fact, in some cases, it's been more diverse. Um, the problem is the speed at which we are headed there. It is the speed that is the problem. 
right? Because the speed is the thing that is going to cause all these species, for example, to die off because they will not have time to adapt to a changing climate. So if the speed is the problem, right? And I'm not saying that where we're headed is a nice place. It is not a nice place. But if the speed is the proximate problem, maybe we should direct some of our attention to the speed, right? And, and what that means, right, is thinking about climate change as an event that we can survive, right? That we can live through together because it's now. Climate change is now. It is happening right now. And maybe we'll all feel a bit better if we start to do something about that. And maybe that'll allow us to actually tackle those other big problems a little bit easier. Yeah. I, I find myself drawn recently to, honestly, like post-apocalyptic fiction, mm -hmm. partially because it does let you imagine a world after or, you know, that what continuation could feel like and lets you begin to imagine what planning looks like. And I do think that some of this thinking that you're putting forward is is getting through because I've in the last little bit, I've come across a few different initiatives that are starting out now that are really focused on helping people plan for climate change. You know, mm -hmm. shifting into that planning narrative and getting focused on how do you set yourself up to prepare for extreme weather, prepare for the ways in which climate change will impact your life. And I think those shifts uh, will begin to do exactly what you're doing, which is trying to get people uh, to see themselves as people who are surviving a climate disaster. But I'm curious how you know how you use story to get people to do that. How how do you draw that out from people? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So. Um, so first off, we often sort of disconnect ourselves from our own climate experiences, right? They're not sort of integrated into our lives. And we often feel, especially in the global north, right, uh, especially in settler culture, we feel that we um, are not as affected, right, um, as other people are, right, by climate change. And that's true. But at the same time, it also creates a situation where it's more difficult for us to find common cause with people who are more acutely affected by climate change. Because if you can see yourself in someone else's experience, and suddenly you're members of a shared community, right? So what we do is we do um, a number of different things as part of these interviews. And these are co-created interviews, by the way, which means the uh, survivor, the storyteller that we work with actually has a say over what questions we ask. We build the questions together. But generally speaking, we like to ask about um, a couple different things. One is we like to ask about who the person is, right? It's really important to get to know the person, right? Then the second thing we do is where they live, right? What is their connection, right, to the community, right? How do I feel about their community? Where do well, all that kind of stuff, right? Because our place, right, is also really important, right? People place. Then what we do is we talk about climate disaster experience, how they experience climate disaster. When did that look like? Um, and then we talk about, after that, the help that they received, help that they provided, or the help that they would have wanted to receive but didn't. And then finally, we ask about solutions. What do they think can be done about this thing that they lived through? What would they like to see happen? And what brings them hope for the future? So it's a story. The interview is a story in and of itself. A story that ends on hope. And it's a story that allows us to connect who we are as people to how we've experienced climate change and then give us a platform to talk about what we would like to do about it, both as individuals and as a society and politically. And then from those interviews, what we usually do is we create what's called an as-told-to story. So this is a story that only uses the climate disaster survivor's own words, right? So we take usually what's a 30-page transcript, condense it down to about 1,200 words. It's true, and it reads true to their 
experience. And then we share that with our news media partners. We're going to be preserving that as part of a large scale climate disaster survivor memory vault, a living library of climate disaster experiences that we're building. Um, and um, we also launched solutions journalism and investigative journalism projects, participatory journalism projects based around what our climate disaster survivors have said. So it creates this virtuous circle. You didn't just talk to us right? To share your experience. You didn't just talk to us, create community. You talked to us because you wanted to be empowered. And we are taking that seriously, taking what you told us seriously. And we're going to help empower, right? By launching solutions, journalism, and investigative journalism projects. Before we go uh, to music break, I have one more question that sort of loops in the last piece of your manifesto, which is, you now have this, these, these stories and you obviously have a way to share them. And you sort of talked earlier about the ways in which this can help us feel less alone. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you unpack that a little bit. How do you see these stories or sh the act of sharing these stories, allowing people to feel like they are part of a collective going through the same thing? Yeah, because we aren't talking about, you know, our climate change experiences, right? And if we don't talk about our climate change experiences, then we don't know how someone else is experiencing it. And we also have no way of receiving support for the experience that we've had. That's that's what being alone is all about, right? It's the lack of support and the lack of ability to provide support. And this is where information is helpful. We can only do something that we know about, right? Both in terms of knowing ourselves and knowing others. And I know we we um, have now have uh, around 45 of these stories. We're on our way to about 100 more this semester. We piloted it last year. And our projection is we'll have about, you know, over 2,000 of these by sort of year seven of the project. And I'll tell you, having read these stories, I know that I feel less alone. And what I also know is that there's an amazing amount of hope out there. There's an amazing amount of people who want things to change, who want things to be different, not just in terms of climate change, but in terms of society as a whole. And I know all the students who have participated in this project feel the same way. They feel less alone, right, in their own experiences because they know someone else is out there who's having the same experience as them, a relatable experience. And maybe if we can create more of that, maybe if we can find more of that solidarity, more of that common cause, maybe everything that we are going through won't seem like a problem that's too big to attack, but instead feel like a problem that we can attack together. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, even just hearing hearing other people's experiences, like again, I, I've we've on the show have talked about climate anxiety a bunch, just because last August or so in twenty twenty one after the heat dome, my experience was around a lot of activists were just have were really having a hard time. Like people were really having a hard time, you know, tail end the pandemic, just truly feeling like we weren't getting anywhere, and and you know the heat dome and these other disasters sort of striking all at the same time. And it didn't feel like the world outside was really engaging with that. You know, like I think no. the instances of climate anxiety in people are so much greater than the sort of experiences you you walk outside and suddenly it's like none of it's happening, right? Like yes. your daily experiences of life currently do such a poor job of reflecting back your lived reality. Exactly. And that and, disconnect and we talk about, is really and we hard. Talk about, and we talk about our feelings, but we don't talk about why we're feeling that way. Right. Right? We don't, we don't connect it, right, to our specific experiences, our specific lived experiences, right? It's this thing that's background noise um, in our brains rather than this thing that's foregrounded, where we can connect our lives to these climate experiences that we're having. And you know, it's interesting, right? These experiences, they're going to change us, right? They're going to profoundly change us as the natural environment visits, violently visits the built environment in countless ways over the coming years. This really will be the defining experience of our lives. 
And we need to find places where we can talk about these experiences. We need to find spaces where we can talk about experience, these experiences. We need to find people where we can talk about these experiences with. I mean, I could have a whole entire conversation as well about how this is also connected to, you know, how our society does a crap job of providing mental health support too, right? And, you know, providing sort of these kinds of sort of confessional spaces where you can fully embody who you are, right? Um, but we're trying to do that, you know, in the Climate Disaster Project to a certain extent. And the other thing that we'll also need to do is we'll also at some point need to find reconciliation, right, in, in what we're going through. Because we are all climate disaster survivors. We are all climate disaster victims. We are also all climate disaster perpetrators to a greater or lesser extent. We live in society. Some people are more culpable for that than other people are. But we're also going to have to find a way of living with that over the coming years. And I think that's also where story can help too. For sure. And so you may not have an answer to this question, but I could not ask it, which is do you personally have a climate disaster survival story? And if so, can you tell it to us? <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, it's funny that you asked that question because, you know, I've now helped run, you know, over 150 students through the uh, Climate Disaster Project at this point. Um, along with my colleagues uh, at at all these other institutions that are participating in the Climate Disaster Project. And um, I've told my story a couple times, but it has actually never resulted in an as-told-to story. And so uh, my... Uh, uh, one of the... One, one of my colleagues, Alden Trellis, um, who is a senior research associate with the project has actually been um, bugging me to to actually do one of these full interviews, right, about my own experience with climate change and and what my uh, experience with climate disaster has been. I would say it's changed over time. Um, so. I would say the first climate disaster that I lived through was uh, that wildfire smoke uh, that billowed over the the Rocky Mountains and and into Calgary, and it was sort of this weird experience, right? Because when I grew up, one of my first big trips was to the Rockies. Um, my parents weren't well off, um, so we did camping a lot, and um, I have such positive associations with uh, campfire smoke, right? Love that, right? Smell. And I also, having grown up mostly in Victoria, I have really positive associations with fog, right? I love fog, right? I love sort of the 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 grayness of the sky, right? And And sort of the wetness and moisture of the fog. And so what was really interesting was when um, Calgary was flooded by wildfire smoke, it looked like fog and it smelt like wildfire smoke, but it wasn't. And that disjuncture, right, was so strong, right? It should have felt like the sea, but it felt dry, right? It should have felt like the openness of mountain air, but it felt claustrophobic. And so these really strong memories that I have as a kid were suddenly wrenched away. And, you know, because there was also sort of heat waves associated, right, with these, these sort of instances of wildfire smoke, you know, it just ended up feeling just so suffocating. And 
that's was my sort of principal, right? Climate disaster experience. It wasn't large. I didn't lose a home, right? I didn't lose a loved one. I didn't lose a livelihood. I didn't lose any of those things. But that didn't mean it wasn't any less profound for me. It changed my entire career path. It also reminded me of something. When I was young, um, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, um, futurism was a big thing. Um, so you had all these books about the future, what the future was going to look like. And I remember one of them called Future Cities very well. It had at the end of it, two trips to the 21st century. And the first trip was to a world where we had taken care of the planet. And this was a world, of course, with monorails, because what is a future without a monorail, right? It's all these green spaces. And the other trip was to this polluted pest hole of the planet where we were forced to wear pollution masks, right? And, you know, planes and trucks fouled the air, gray, polluted, and ugly. And I was looking outside my Calgary window when this wildfire smoke was billowing across the Rockies, and that was what I saw. That was totally what I saw. And it frightened me, as it would, I think, frighten many people. Yeah. So, for sure. yeah. So that's, that's, that's been, that was my, that was my motivating climate experience. I've had others since then. We worked up in Lytton over the summer with um, the Stein Valley and Cutmick School uh, there um, to uh, collaborate on a, a time capsule uh, project to commemorate the experiences of the wildfire that destroyed 90% of the buildings in that community. And so I've had sort of many, you know, sort of profound experiences with climate disaster since then as a result of the work the project has been doing. But I would say that for me, that wildfire smoke that year, that's what I remember. Even here in Toronto, I think that wildfire might have made a bit of smoke end up here and just knowing that that smoke came from you know all the way out west and yet still you could feel it in your mouth a little bit right i can only imagine what it would be like is that much closer and dealing with it so much more regularly yeah absolutely and as i say i mean these are the kind of experiences we actually need to be sharing right we need to share the full gradient of the experience because the news media focuses on trauma porn right they focus on disaster porn they focus on the big experiences so again, makes it feel like it's something that's happening to someone else or happening far away for many people, not everyone, but many people. And yet we are all profoundly affected by it in one way, shape or form or another. And it's coming for us. Yeah. yeah. If you feel like you haven't had one yet, just wait, it'll come. Just wait, it'll happen. Yeah. So where do you see this project going next? How do you see the next couple of years? Well, um, the big uh, exercise that the project is involved in right now is fundraising right now, <laughs> um, because this is a big project, right? We're building the largest living library of climate disaster experiences in the world. Um, and we are looking to create connections between those experiences, and we are looking to empower those connections at the same time. Um, so... A large part of my job right now is is granting writing grant applications. Um, uh, but um, at sort of a larger level, right, it is about more than anything, um, you know, helping other people share their experiences. And and I think that's the way we need to look at it as journalists as well. It's too often, I think we sort of make determinations about what the story should be and what kind of story we're telling, right? Because we're telling this story. And what's, I think, interesting, right, is we should maybe reframe it as journalists, which is how can we be of service in this moment? What can we do at this moment of disaster? And I think what we can do is we can share other people's stories and we can help empower those stories. That's what we can do. And that's going to be an ongoing exercise. If this project is successful, it'll be a multi-generational project that will be a living account of climate change that will help us survive it together. Beautiful. And so for folks who want to get involved now or learn more about the project, how can they do that? Yeah. So we actually do have a website. Um, 
which is in the process of being refreshed. It's climatedisasterproject.com. Um, but you can also feel free to get a hold of me. Um, I love to hear from people. So uh, my email address is smholman, H-O-L-M-A-N, at uvic.ca. And I would love to hear uh, from folks who would be interested in uh, being part of this. Amazing. So it is our tradition to give our guests a last thought. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to thank you for being here, sort of do my version of the close of the show, and then I'm going to throw to you and you can sort of speak to our audience about anything that you maybe want to convey to them or you think you might have want to highlight from our conversation. And so thank you so much, Sean Holman, the director at the Climate Disaster Project and the Wayne Crooks Professor of Climate and Environmental Journalism at the University of Victoria. Honestly, such a pleasure talking to you. I've learned so much and it's such a great project. But yeah, any last thoughts? Yeah. So I think in the world that we're living in right now, we're living at a time of big problems. And those problems can seem so towering. They can seem so insurmountable. And they can seem like someone else's problems. That it's governments, corporations that need to do something about what's happening. And I guess what I would say to everyone with all my heart is that's not true. Governments and corporations are simply a sum of our individual actions or inactions. And if we can come together as a community around this experience of climate change, those problems that seem so big right now will shrink. The mountains in the distance will become foothills and we'll be able to live through this experience together. Not because we don't see it truly, but because we're moving through a landscape as a family does, as friends do, as a community does together.